Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open to Luke chapter 8, our text this morning. I read a moment ago verses 19 through 21. Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. The title of the message today is, Are You Related? From time to time, uh, someone will ask you your last name. And then they'll say, Are you related to so-and-so? Well, the question is, Are we related to Jesus? Now let's read our text again. Luke chapter 8, verse 19. And his mother and brothers came to him. They were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Because there is so little revealed in the scriptures about Jesus' childhood, we sometimes forget that part and parcel of his incarnation was living in a family unit. He had an earthly father named Joseph, mother named Mary, but he also has brothers and sisters. Now that surprises some folks. It should not. Gospel of Mark chapter 6 even tells us some of their names. Listen, Jesus went out from there and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him and when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? Jesus grew up not only in a family, but a large family. He had brothers and sisters. Well, one day as Jesus was teaching, as was his custom, he was going from village to village there in the region of Galilee. Everywhere he went, more people began to follow There came to be so many people that followed him that the scripture says he couldn't even eat a meal. And his family, his mother Mary, along with some of his brothers, showed up. They'd heard he was in this particular village. They couldn't get near him, and so they passed a a message from the back to the front to come outside so they could see him. So, have you ever wondered why they wanted to see Jesus? It was not just that they missed their brother. Well, We don't have to wonder. Mark chapter 3 tells us that when he went home, the crowd gathered again so that they, that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went outside to seize him. For they were saying he's out of his mind. His brothers were embarrassed by the fact that the uh, religious leaders, the Pharisees, were telling people that not to listen to Jesus, that he's performing these miracles and teaching these lessons in the power of Satan. And it was uh, besmirching the good family name. And so they were going to take him, I take it by force if necessary, and bring him back home. His brothers and sisters at this point did not believe in him. Well, Mary certainly did. She remembered that night when the angel came to her and told her that she would have a son, that he would be the savior of his people. We have no more mention of Joseph, his father, after he's 12 years old. He likely passed away before Jesus began his public ministry. We do know that Jesus' brothers and sisters later on did put their faith and trust in him, but not at first. For example, James, the brother of Jesus, became the leader in the church at Jerusalem. In fact, the book of James in your New Testament was authored by him. 
Another little book of the New Testament, the one chapter book of Jude, was authored by another of Jesus' brothers. In fact, Acts chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that after Jesus ascended, after His resurrection, after 40 days, Mary and Jesus' brothers were present with the disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem as they awaited the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now if you read these three verses as I did rather rapidly, it might sound like Jesus is being just a little bit disrespectful to His mother and to His brothers to leave them waiting outside while He's inside ministering to, to people who were not His blood relatives. But we know that Jesus was not disrespectful. In fact, uh, one of His last acts before He died was to make sure that His mother was cared for after His passing on the cross as Jesus uh, was dying. He told John that uh, He was to care for His mother. And one of the obstacles that the disciples had a hard time getting over was their tendency to only think in physical terms. And here Jesus is talking about family relationships. And He knows that they're going to think physically, but He's really speaking spiritually. And so, do yourself a favor today and think in spiritual terms about our topic today is, are you related to Jesus? Jesus was always more concerned about the spiritual than He was the physical. And here's another example of that. Let me just give you two quickly. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus the Pharisee came to Jesus by cover of darkness, inquiring, we suppose, about how does one get in the kingdom of God? And Jesus preempted all the other conversation. He says, you must be what? Born again. Nicodemus, thinking in physical terms, says, I'm an old man. I can't be born again. I can't enter a second time into my mother's womb. Another time, Jesus was speaking to the throngs of people and He said, you must eat my body and drink my blood. Remember it was at that point that many of the so-called disciples of Jesus turned away and they said, these are hard teachings. Jesus was of course speaking in spiritual terms and not physical. Well, so it is with this teaching on family. When we ask the question, are you related to Jesus? We mean, are you in His forever family? Now, to uh, the ancient world way of thinking and really right up until today, there, there are basically three ways to enter into a family relationship. One is to be born into it. We call that by blood. Another is by adoption. And a third way is, is by marriage. First of all, let, let's talk about what it means to be related to Jesus by blood. My wife's baby brother is getting married in June. And the young lady that he's engaged to has a brother and a sister. What is unusual about this family is that all the siblings were born on the same day. They are triplets. Two girls and a boy. And uh, she has told me that occasionally when she tells people that she's one of three, a triplet, they will ask her about uh, the other two. And she'll say, well, I have a brother and a sister. And they'll say, are you all identical? <laughs> Some of you got that. And somehow you'll get it on the way home. <laughs> but what is obvious about all three of these siblings is they are related by blood. Well, if you are related to Jesus spiritually, it must be by blood. And I'm not speaking about genetics. I'm speaking about the application of the atoning blood of the Lamb of God on your sins. In fact, when the Scripture talks about atonement in Hebrews chapter 9, this is what it said. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So it was through that sacrifice that our sin's debt is paid. We are justified according to Romans 5.9, much more than 
having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. What it means to be justified means to be forgiven, Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. What it means to be forgiven means that you no longer have to fear the wrath of God, his righteous judgment. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 1 Peter 2, 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sin might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. That means that uh, not only have we been forgiven, we have been made alive spiritually. John 6, 53, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Not only have we been given new life, we have been thoroughly cleansed by the blood of Christ. You remember the old hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1, 7, For if we walk in the light as He is the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. But not only that, we now have the Holy Spirit living within us, and it's that same power that causes us to live in holiness. Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. We're able to overcome Satan and his temptations by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. With Easter fast approaching, our hearts and minds turned to the cross, at least they should. It was on the cross where Jesus shed his blood for sinners like us. Now you need to know though, when you start singing songs like that and making statements like I just did about the blood of Christ, some people are going to be offended by this. Some of them claiming to be Christians. I've told you the story before. It's a true story of a New Testament professor in one of our Baptist seminaries who used to tell his class on day one, New Testament one, there will be no talk of a bloody cross in this classroom. He taught his pupils that if God required a blood sacrifice of his son, that would make him a, quote, cosmic child abuser. Well, with apologies to that former professor, I'm glad to say, the Bible teaches that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. We're grateful for the blood of Jesus. And that blood atonement is seen throughout the Bible. It's not just in passages about Easter in the New Testament. Do you remember the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, and God came to them in the cool of the morning to fellowship with them, and they hid from God because they realized they were naked. And they tried to put together some pitiful little clothes out of leaves. What did God do? He clothed them in the skin of animals. Well, that animal had to die, didn't he? And I think he killed those animals and skinned them right in front of Adam and Eve. That would be a vivid reminder to them of the high cost of their sin. Just as in the Old Testament sacrificial system, every time a young family took a lamb or a goat or a bull or a pigeon up to the temple to sacrifice it, and the priest killed that animal in front of them, it was a vivid reminder of the high cost of their sin. Of course, the truth is, all of those sacrifices had no ability to forgive anybody's sin. They were simply a foreshadowing and a prophecy of the coming Christ who is the once for all sacrifice for sins. And so my point is this, if we are in right relationship with Jesus Christ, if we can indeed 
say that we are in his family, it must be by and through his blood. But it also, Scripture teaches, is by adoption. So pleased with our adoption and fostering ministry that Brother Tony has led us to in recent years here. And as I look around the room, I know many of you are participating in that. Some of you are adopting, fostering. Some of you are assisting in ways you can. And I'm pleased about that ministry because it's so biblical. What we're doing when we emphasize adoption is that we are emphasizing physically what the spiritual is emphasized in the Bible. And here's one thing I've noticed about adoption is that adoption is not simply based on the willingness of the child to be adopted, but by the willingness of the parent to adopt. This is spiritually true as well. We, we are brought into this family of faith, not based on our goodness, not based on even our willingness to be in the family, but by the sovereign will of God. Listen to Ephesians 1.4. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Now here is Paul describing the transaction by which a lost person is adopted into the family of God, and the emphasis is not on the one being adopted, it's on the one who's doing the adopting. He says, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons. That is, He determined to do that before we were even born. And the means by which He brought that about, he says, is, through Jesus Christ. That means through His blood. And why did He do it? Well, the only thing He says is according to the purpose of His will, because He wanted to. But ultimately the reason is to the praise of His glorious grace. Remember we say here, what is the reason God does everything He does? For His own glory. And that is true of, of your salvation and mine. Galatians 4.4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that they might receive adoption as sons. Now here we have a mixed metaphor. We have the metaphor of slavery and redemption and the metaphor of adoption. The picture is that Jesus purchased our freedom and the cost was His blood. But not only does He now call us servants, He calls us sons and daughters. He brought us out of the slave market of sin, not only gave us our freedom, He gave us the title of children of the Most High God. He adopted us, as it were, into His family. Romans 8.15, But you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son who wasted his inheritance before his father died, the scripture says, in wicked living, came to his senses as he was eating the slop from the pig pen. He says, here's what I'll do. He said, even the servants in my father's house have enough bread to eat. I'll go and present myself to the father, not as a son, but as a servant. What did the father do? He ran to him, put the robe upon him, welcomed him as a son. Well, this is what the scripture says, Jesus says, we don't have to cower in fear of the Father as a slave would do. He says, we have the spirit of adoption whereby we can call God Abba. Now that is a term of endearment that very small children used to use. If you have children or grandchildren, you know that generally the first words they speak are either Dada or Mama, right? And uh, this is a form of that, Abba. 
daddy. It's what a small child would say, a term of love towards his father. That's the privilege we have by being adopted into his family. We have that sort of intimacy of relationship. But that's, that's amazing. Just think about that. The God who created this entire universe, you can call daddy. Romans 8.23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our, our bodies. Now when he speaks of our salvation, remember it's from three perspectives. There's the perspective of justification, and that is in one moment in time when we repent of sins, we call upon the name of the Lord, at that moment He declares us no longer guilty. He justifies us legally. And then throughout our lifetime we are growing in the image of Christ. We call that progressive sanctification. And there will come a day when we die or Jesus comes again when we will enter into glorification. And this is what he's speaking of here. We eagerly await when we are adopted, that is, fully as sons and the redemption of our bodies where we can walk and talk with the Lord forever. So the point is this, if we are related to Jesus, it must be through His blood, but it must be also through adoption. Now there's a third way we enter into a family relationship, that is uh, by, by marriage. Now traditionally in our culture, the women will take on the last name of their husband when they get married. So you can enter into a new family through marriage, but, but really uh, husbands also enter into their, their wives' marriage, that uh, family. That's what I tell young people, by the way. When they want to get married, you're marrying not only your wife, but her family. And so you need to understand that. I was reminded of that this week. Uh, my dad and, and my six-year-old son Andrew and I had a, had a men's trip. And we went over to Mississippi this week and we visited uh, both sides of the family's ancestral cemeteries. My dad's cemetery up in North Mississippi, my mother's cemetery in South Mississippi. It's the first time my little boy had ever been there. And uh, we went to the, the Sanders Cemetery and he's just now beginning to read a little bit, but he knows his name. And he saw that name Sanders on a lot of these tombstones and he began to ask some questions. And he, he sort of understood it, I think, till he came to one tombstone and he read my father's name on in one side and my mother's name on the other. There's one little catch, they're both still alive. And he looked at my dad and he looked at the tombstone. <laughs> he did that two or three times and he said, why is your tombstone here when you're still alive? And he said, it's because the Bible says it's appointed everyone wants to die. And so we have to be ready. Ready not only for the life to come, but uh, for the event of our, our own death. And he sort of understood that, but, but not really. And uh, in the car a little bit later, the conversation came up about marriage. And uh, Papa said to Andrew, I, I can't wait for you to get married, Andrew. I'm going to be there. Andrew didn't say anything for a little while, and then he said, you might be out in that cemetery. <laughs> and that's true of all of us. None of us know what tomorrow holds. The, the point is that when you, you, you come into a new family, you have both sides, don't you? And uh, we went on down to my mother's family and saw where her folks are buried. And throughout the scriptures in both Old and New Testament, God refers to His chosen people as His bride. 
and, and he entered into relationship with him. He chose them out of all the nations of the, the world through Father Abraham and all of his descendants became God's chosen people. And yet the scripture is very clear in the Old Testament that God's bride was unfaithful to him and it broke his heart. In fact, he, he accused Israel of committing their adultery on every high hill and in every grove of trees. That is a vivid and very clear uh, allusion to their idol worship. One of the great sins of Israel is they kept going to other false gods, even though the first two commandments have to do with idolatry, don't they? Have no other gods before me, don't make any graven images. But they did over and again, and it broke God's heart. And the picture there is of a loving husband who loved and nurtured his, his wife and wanted nothing but the best for her, but she kept on committing adultery. Now in the New Testament, God refers to the church as the bride of Christ. We see that in a number of places. For example, Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her and having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. And when we have a wedding here, I stand right here and I look at that back door and when everything is in place, I give a little nod and the doors fling open and the organ kicks in and through those doors comes a beautiful bride dressed in white. And that picture is of purity isn't it? And, and this is the picture in the New Testament of the church cleansed by the blood of Jesus, given to the Son by the Father as, as a love gift. In fact, in those days that the Father would choose often the bride for the Son, and John 14, 1, 3 explains a custom that they had that usually the, the Son who was still living with his Father would not build a separate home, he would simply build a room on his home. And then when the room was furnished and prepared, he would send for her and she would come with great pomp and circumstance. There'd be a great, sometimes week-long celebration and they would be married. And in John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, and where I am you may be also. Jesus is saying this period of separation between the bride, the church, and the groom, Christ, He is making things ready, and when everything is in order and just the right moment, then He's going to, to come for His bride, the church. And then we're going to enjoy, according to Revelation chapter 19, a celebration. John calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Listen, let, let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, these are the true words of God. And so the point is clear that uh, to be considered in the family of God, you must have the blood of Christ applied. So it's by blood, it's also by adoption. You have to be called by Him and made a son or daughter of His. And uh, 
Ultimately, it's by marriage because once you are saved, then you become a part of His church, the bride of Christ. So that, that leads us to, I think, a concluding question. How do you know if you're in the family of God? How do you know? Someone asks you, are you related to so-and-so? They may want you to produce some documentation. So if you're related by blood, you, you might produce a birth certificate that is notarized and says that this person is your blood mother and this person is your father. But if you're adopted, you would be granted a certificate of adoption by the state in which you were adopted and it would certify that you are as much a son or daughter as if you had been born into that family in the eyes of the law and in every other way. And if you come into a family by marriage, I hope you know where your marriage certificate is. I, I have to uh, send those in when I perform a ceremony here. I sign it and date it that I witnessed that and performed that marriage and sent off to Tarrant County. And then after a few weeks, they send it back uh, to, to the bride and groom. And so we give documentation. And so the question is, how do you know if you're in God's family? Well, you say, well, I, somewhere in my mama's house, I've got a baptism certificate. That's not what I'm talking about. You know what a, a baptism certificate proves? You got wet. That's about all that, that proves. What is the proof? What is the evidence that you're in God's family? Well, it's in verse 21. Look at it. Remember, his family comes up. They say, send Jesus out to see us. And they send him a message. Hey, your mom and your brothers are here. Verse 21. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God. And what? Do it. Brother Tony reminded us last week that one of the advantages of teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible as we do here is that we get to study in context. And these three verses today, 19 through 21, are in the context of everything that preceded it, particularly verse 18. So back up to verse 18 and let's read the context. Jesus is speaking to the crowd. He says, so take care how you listen for whoever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. He's speaking there of the gospel. And I've often said that I think one of the most dangerous places in America is Keller, Texas. Remember, we're talking spiritual and not physical. Because I read an article the other day that Keller, Texas is one of the safest places physically to live, low crime rate and so forth. But spiritually, it's a very dangerous place, and here's why. Scripture says, to whom much is given, much is required. Think about living where we do. There's a church on every corner. There's half a dozen or more Christian radio stations on your dial. There's television. There are books. The largest theological library in the world is 20 miles from here. It's available to you. We have access to the gospel 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But the Scripture says that if we don't listen and obey it, it will be taken from us. That is, we're going to be called into account one day for it. And what happens when we hear the gospel day after day, year after year, if we don't repent and believe it and obey it, we become a little bit more hardened in our sin. And, and there are those, I fear, in this very room who have sat under gospel preaching for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And you've never repented. You've never obeyed it. You've heard it. That is, you've processed the words into your ears and into your brain, but 
never got to your heart. It's fallen on that hard soil. It's never produced fruit. And so, so how do we know we're in the family of God? Well, we obey His commandments. You know what John says about the commandments of Christ? They are not grievous. It means they're not burdensome. That's one of the things that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees about during His public ministry is that they had put so many rules and regulations on the people that God never gave them. They had added to the law to the point that it had become this incredible burden upon the people. And, and Jesus says, you put burdens on the people that you yourself are not willing to carry. And so what is the invitation Jesus gave to the people? Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now we don't see many draft animals around here, but in the ancient world it was very common. And a yoke is that wooden instrument that, that put an animal in the plow or pulled the cart. And, and if it did not fit well, it chafed and it irritated the animal. Well, that burden of the law was chafing and irritating the people. Not only that, they were pulling these heavy loads that they couldn't bear, and it had made serving God unbearable. And Jesus says it's not supposed to be that way. And so he said, if you'll come to me, I'll tell you what, my yoke will fit you just right. And my burden is, is light. What, what are the commandments of Christ? Well, they're basically these. Repent. Recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Turn away from your sin and turn towards Christ. That's really what the word literally means. You're walking this way, you, you turn and walk in the other direction. You must confess. First of all, confess you are a sinner and confess what Jesus says about Himself is true and what He says about you is true. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. But you have to confess you're a sinner. Scripture says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And He does that by the power of His own blood. And, and then you must trust, which means to believe. Now to believe on Christ, as we said a couple weeks ago, means more than to give intellectual assent to historical facts. It means to put your weight. Now if I sat down in that chair and I pulled my feet up off the floor, I would be trusting that that chair could hold me up. I'm not so sure it will, so I'm not going to do that. But if I did that, I would be trusting that that chair would hold me up. When we believe on Jesus, we put our weight on Him, the weight of our sin, and we're saying, I believe that Jesus has done everything that is necessary for me to be forgiven and enter into right relationship with my Creator. What about you, dear friend? Is that what you're trusting in? Now, you'll notice it's not faith plus some things you do. That's what most people have the idea that, you know, I believe in Christ, but I've got to do some things too to get my life in order. And, and then working together, God and I, you know that old bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. No, God's the pilot. Right? He doesn't need a co-pilot. He is sovereign. He's in control. And, and to put your faith and trust in Jesus means, by definition, you're trusting in nothing else. In Christ alone, the simplest verse in the Bible that explains this is John 3.16. Most children have memorized it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe, that is trust, put their weight on Him, would not perish 
but would have everlasting life. How do you know you're in God's family? You've repented of sins, you've confessed Him as Lord and Savior, and you've put your full weight and trust in Christ alone. If you're here today and that's true of you, you're a believer. You're in the family of God. You're in the family of God by blood, the blood of Jesus, by adoption, and by marriage, because you're a part of His church. And we would invite you today, if you've never done so, to profess Him publicly. Maybe there's somebody here today, and, and you have put your faith and trust in Christ. You're trusting in Him alone and what He did, but you've never told anyone. You've certainly never said it in public. You've never joined a church. You've never followed Him in obedience and baptism. Well, in a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to do that. So we stand to sing in a moment. We're going to ask you to just come out from right where you are and come down and tell one of these pastors that I'm, I'm ready to follow Jesus. Well, maybe there's a, a family, a couple, a single person, and that you're a Christian. Maybe you've even been baptized, but uh, you don't have a church home. You need a local church family as well. And so we would invite you to come today, and as you're coming, uh, you're saying, I want to be part of this First Baptist family, and we will welcome you into this family. In whatever way the Lord would lead you today, we pray you'd be obedient. Now let's pray together and thank you for His Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word, these three simple verses that we've read today. And thank you, Father, that um, for all of us who have trusted in Christ and repented of sins, confessed Him as Lord and Savior, that we do not have to fear your wrath. In fact, you call us no longer strangers, but friends. But not only friends, you call us sons and daughters of the Most High. You tell us that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Father, that is uh, a truth too, too great for words. You purchased us out of the slave market of sin and you gave us not only our freedom, but you adopted us into your family. And through the church, we can rightly say that we're part of the bride of Christ. And one day we will sit around the table of heaven with men and women, boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and nation at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, we look forward with great anticipation to that. But Lord, we know that in a group this large, there may be someone, maybe more than one, who does not know you as Lord and Savior. And so we would pray that your spirit would move among us, quicken dead hearts and uh, convict of sin. Do that which is necessary, Father, to bring a lost soul to salvation. And when that happens, we'll give you all the praise, the honor and glory. And we pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.